Testing one, two. Oh, good. I think. Is that better? Can you hear me? Oh, good. <laughs> okay. Um, it was interesting how God works things out. As you may or may not know, I'm teaching a, an adult class on Sunday mornings on the book of Hebrews, trying to cover the entire book in eight weeks, <laughs> which is a joke. But anyway, um, unfortunately, it's not a joke. Um, so uh, it was interesting because it just so happens that this past Sunday I covered the end of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 in that class. So uh, it was fortuitous in God's timing that, uh, that this came up today. <clears throat> what, what our attempt to do this morning is, I didn't know exactly what they covered last week, uh, but I'm going to take just a moment and do a little review of sort of the flow of the book at this point, and then we're going to jump into what for many is the most problematic passage in the book, in some people's minds, in the whole scripture. So uh, it'll be fun and interesting, I hope. There is a lot of extra material on your handout that we just don't have on the slides because we've only got a limited time this morning. Um, so by way of review, uh, remember that the, the writer talked about how he wanted to tell them more about Melchizedek, but they'd become dull of hearing. Literally, they're their hearing had become heavy, is what it says, uh, and that he had need for, for them to go back and review the elementary principles. And the, the words there are very interesting um, because you could literally catch the idea of it by saying, I have to teach you the ABCs all over again. Now, every one of us in this room <clears throat> knows the ABCs, we learned them a long time ago, in my case, a really long time ago. But uh, we, it's not something we sit down every day and review, is it? You know, A, B, C, D, we don't do that. We use them every day, but we don't review them because our current practice and knowledge are built upon those things. So he's telling them, you should be, by this time, you actually really ought to be teachers. But instead, I have to go back and teach you the elementary things of Christ. Uh, and then he urges them onto maturity, which he's going to do again. And it's interesting because he defines maturity uh, as someone who, by reason of practice, he says, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And that's a funny thing because we, we kind of tend in our culture, in American evangelicalism, to think of maturity in terms of knowledge. You know, this person is very knowledgeable. He has a lot of information about the scriptures or about theology or whatever. Uh, but that's not what the, the writer says. The writer says he's mature if he takes that information and uses it, lives it, which is an interesting perspective, isn't it? And he's urging them to take what they know, what they've learned, and live it out. And so that's a, that's a really important thing. Uh, the next thing as we jump through this very quickly in the first part of chapter 3 he tells them that he, he really wants them to grow up <laughs> which is sort of a polite way of saying you know get your act together here um, therefore leaving the elementary teaching about Christ let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God 
of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So he takes just a moment and kind of reviews some of these foundational items for them. And he starts with a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Our faith, our Christianity, is literally built on that, isn't it? That we have turned to God from idols, as Paul tells the Thessalonian believers. We have we've repented and we've come to God in faith and submitted ourselves entirely to His will, to His doing, His salvation. That is the foundation of our faith, isn't it? And then he says, what instructions about washings, and literally the word is baptismos, which is we would translate as baptisms. And of course, remember he's talking to a Jewish audience. So the, the concept of mikvah or, or baptism was not unfamiliar to them even in their old lives. And of course, in the new covenant, it has a different context, doesn't it? Because it, it reminds us, it symbolizes for us the Holy Spirit our washing with the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, verse 13, for we have all been baptized by one Spirit into one body. You remember that? And we've all been made to drink of one Spirit. So it is the Spirit of God, that indwelling Holy Spirit that comes into us, that baptizes us into the body of Christ. And this is an elementary thing of our faith, isn't it? It's something that's foundational. The next thing that he talks about is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And of course, we all know that resurrection is what Christianity is about, isn't it? It's about the fact that Christ not only died for sin, but that he was resurrected. Every sermon that we have recorded in the New Testament, whether by Peter, Paul, or whomever, centers on the resurrection of Jesus that he is in fact the first fruits of the resurrection because he paid the penalty for sin and therefore sin could not hold him, death could not hold him, he was resurrected in the same way we will be. Because, In fact, Paul says in Ephesians that we were resurrected with him, raised together with him and into the heavenly places. So just again, he's reviewing for them the foundations of our faith, isn't he? Not because they don't know it, but because he wants to remind them of it. Because these things, he says, are the foundations upon which our maturity as believers are built. So, the next thing he does is in verses 4 through 6. I want to read these verses because they are, as I put in the notes there, the elephant in the room. All right? For, in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and had been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Um, there's, a, there's a really important linguistic aspect to this. And that is that in this law, and it's a long sentence in Greek, the very first word of the sentence is the word impossible. Now, in the translation, it comes later because it's difficult for us to craft an English sentence that would follow that, that order. 
But nevertheless, that is the first word that the writer puts in the sentence. And of course, the, one of the important meanings of that is that he's emphasizing it. But putting it first, it's as though he's underscoring it and bolding it and putting it in capital letters and italicizing it. If he were reading it, he would have shouted it, Impossible! That's what he's saying. So what is he saying that's impossible? Because that's really the, the question here. And he lists this whoever this group of people, for right now, let's just call them Class X individuals, that whoever they are, they have certain characteristics. So, before we look at those characteristics, I want us to think about the logic of the statement, because it's important that we get clear in our minds what he is saying and what the implications of what he's saying are. So, the first thing is that there are three questions that we have to answer in this passage. The first question is, are Class X individuals saved or unsaved? And that's, there's a, that's a binary choice, isn't it? There's no third option. They're either saved or they're unsaved. So that's a really important question, isn't it? Now, the second question then what does having fallen away mean? So whether they're saved or unsaved, what does it mean when he says, and have fallen away? Because that's the last description he gives of them, of this list of descriptions. The third question then, what does renew them again to repentance? Or as the ESV says, restore them again to repentance. What does that phrase mean? So answering those questions in a logical sense is what's going to give us the sense the impact, the guts of what he's saying. So, let's look at the first question. Are Class X individuals saved or unsaved? So the, the options here, for some reason, that alignment didn't come out right on this slide, but that's okay. It did on mine, but different versions of PowerPoint do different things, I know. So, you have, they're either saved or they're unsaved, right? That's, that's got to be the case. So, let's say for a moment that they're unsaved individuals. There are a lot of, of commentators who read this passage, and because of what they are afraid that it says, <laughs> they want to say, well, well, these people were never believers at all. So, let's assume for a moment that that's what he's saying, that these people are unsaved. Okay. If so, then what is the sense of what he's saying? Because what he says is, and then the following way, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So if they're unsaved individuals, they're already outside of God's grace, aren't they? In terms of having taken advantage of it. So if they're unsaved, then what is the sense of what he's saying? They're already judged, aren't they? John chapter 3, he who does, does not believe in the Son has been judged already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, if he were saying they were unsaved, then all he's doing is saying, okay, they keep on being unsaved. To the final end, they end up in hell. Then, what that means then is that that phrase, to renew them again to repentance, doesn't mean anything, does it? What, what can it mean? If they never had repented in the first place, 
which remember he says is the foundation of our faith, if they've never been in repentance, how could they be renewed to it? Doesn't seem possible, does it? So that in a very real sense, if these people are unsaved, then he's not saying anything about them except that they stay unsaved. Which seems kind of odd in the context, doesn't it? So, let's say, well, let's pause for a minute and say, okay, if the possibility then that they're unsaved doesn't seem logically tenable, then let's say that they are saved. All right? So, then the question, question two, and then have fallen away. It either means that they've lost their salvation or it means something else, right? Again, there are only two choices. Having fallen away, if they're saved individuals and they've fallen away, that either means they've lost their salvation or it means something other than that, right? Again, there's no third choice, is there? So let's follow the logic. If they have lost their salvation, then by virtue of what he says, they can never regain it. Isn't that what he says? It is impossible, he says, to renew them again to repentance. So whatever this fallen away means, if it means they've lost it, it also means they can't ever get it back. I have a lot of acquaintances and through the years a lot of friends who are Arminian who believe that you can lose your salvation. Not a single one of them wants to believe that he can't ever get it back again. But if you follow the logic of what the writer actually says, that has to be true. Because, he says, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Wow, that's pretty strong, isn't it? So, if that's the case, then the third question, well, let's go back. If they've lost their salvation, they can never regain it. So if, they, if it means something other than the fact that they've lost their salvation, then what exactly does it mean? What is the sense of this warning that he's giving them? Well, that's where the third question comes in. What does renew them again to repentance mean? Um, I want to take a moment and talk about this. The reason this passage is so frightening to so many believers is because they believe that Paul is talking about saved individuals and that he is saying they can lose their salvation. And then they don't know what to do with it because of what he says. Can't renew them again to repentance. So is he saying that this is some kind of special class of saved individuals who, if they can lose their salvation, they're just doomed forever? Do you understand the, the inherent contradiction of that? If, when I trusted Christ, he gave me eternal life. That's what 1 John 5 says, doesn't it? He who has the Son has life, right? That's what it says. So if I have eternal life by virtue of my trusting him, and if somehow that life can be taken away from me, then I must have had temporary eternal life. Wait, wait a minute. What does eternal mean then? 
You see the problem there? It's the reason why the whole concept of eternal security becomes important. It's why it's part of the statement of faith at Open Door is because in a very real, honest, practical sense, you either have to believe in eternal security or you have to believe in eternal insecurity. And I know a number of Christians in my life, in my experience, who, with, for whom that is the situation. They're constantly worried about, oh my gosh, have I lost my salvation? And because of that, they never go on to anything else. They never go on to do anything important for God because they're so concerned. Oh my gosh, what if I've lost it? I mean, I, I can talk forever about that. I'm not going to. But I, I want you to understand that's a really, really important thing. So, if then he's saying these are saved individuals, and if he's saying they are fallen away, then what does that mean? Well, let's look at what he actually says about these individuals. What he says about them is that they have once been enlightened. And I have on your notes there linguistic notes about what the word actually says and instances, in almost all cases, of where that word is used by this author in this book. So what I'm trying to establish there is what does this writer mean when he uses that word? Well, the word enlightened is fotidzo, and it means to bring light, to make light. And the only other place he uses it is in chapter 10, where he's talking to the believer he's writing to, and he says, when you were once having been enlightened, you, you went on, and, and it describes their early life in Christ and what happened to them. So according to the way this author uses that, he must mean they've received the enlightenment of God's Spirit, mustn't he? Again, let's go back to the logic for just a moment. The, the writer is writing to believers. And that's clear, I think, in lots of ways. One of the clearest indications of that is back in chapter 3 of this book, verse 1, where he calls them holy brethren, partakers of Christ. Well, I don't know about you. <laughs> There's no unsaved person of whom I would use that description. By definition, I wouldn't. So, let's go on for a minute with the descriptions. He says, and have tasted of the heavenly gift. I don't know what happened to my pointer. can't see it. I have tasted of the heavenly gift. And that word, there are some who <clears throat> try to say, well, that doesn't mean they really took it. They just sort of tasted just a little tiny sip of it. And I'm going, wait a minute. The problem with that, the real problem, is how he uses that word in other places. Chapter 2, Paul, uh, the, the writer says that Christ tasted death for every man. This same word. You go, wait a minute. Christ didn't just, you know, taste death. No, he actually ate it, didn't he? And that by the way, is one of the meanings of this word, to eat. So he actually took it. It actually 
invaded his being. He was separated from the Father by our sin, wasn't he? He physically died. So he actually did partake of death. He actually did eat it, as it were, didn't he? So these people, he says, they've tasted the heavenly gift and they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. And that word is used actually a total of five other times. The first one is in chapter one where he calls, where he uses the word companions, which is based on this word of having partaken, that is sharers together, the idea of the word. So, but it also says that Christ partook of flesh and blood. Um, wow. Well, think about that for a minute. When he partook of flesh and blood, it means he became a human being, didn't he? He was actually incarnate, born into flesh. Flesh and bone, flesh and blood, right? So these people whom he's describing, he says, are partakers of the Holy Spirit. He's actually, they share in him. Well, that's only true of believers, isn't it? It only can be true of believers. And then he calls, he says, they have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And he uses that same verb, duomai, again, which means to eat or to taste. So they've, they've actually eaten the word of God and, and the powers of the age to come. So I think it would be hard to find a clearer way to explain that he's talking about genuine believers here. I think that's clear from the language and from the logic. So then the question is, what does have fallen away mean? And by the way, just for the sake of understanding, those descriptions, those who have, have once had been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, made, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, and fallen away, are five participial phrases in Greek. It's like a participial phrase is, in English would be like, uh, Johnny, having been born of his mother, was her son. Okay. Well, we use participles that way, but in Greek, participles are much more common and much more widely used. But the parallelism that he makes here, bing, 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 he describes them in five ways. And the fifth way is having fallen away. You go, okay, so what does that mean? What does having fallen away mean? <clears throat> it's an interesting question because you have to remember, I believe, that he's talking to believers and that he's talking about believers. If you look back through the book, you will find many other places where he warns them about... I think I have a slide on this somewhere. No, I don't. Um, where he gives them warnings. It's in your notes, I know. Where he gives them warnings. He's giving them encouragement. He's telling them, look... You have a choice before you. You can either continue in this life in Christ or you can abandon him and go back. Now, in order to understand the implications of that, we have to remember that he's writing to Jewish believers, probably around 68 AD. So many of them have come through a lot in their lives. They came to understand that Christ was in fact Messiah and that 
they have trusted him, they have understood that he was God in flesh, and they have been, become a part of the Christian community. But they still, in many cases, remained in the synagogue as a part of the Jewish community. And the synagogue was not just a place they went to worship, it was literally the center of their lives. Because everything on a social and relational and religious level that went on in their lives was centered in the synagogue. But then, as time went on in the mid to early 60s AD, a lot of Jewish synagogues came to the point where they were concerned about the fact that these people are following Jesus now. And they seem different from us, and they, they've taken the faith in a direction that we don't like. And so they began putting them out of the synagogue, excommunicating them, as it were. Well, all of a sudden, you're a Jewish believer, and the whole center of your life is now gone. You don't have relationships with these people anymore. You don't have friends in that community except for the other believers Christian believers who are around you, and you say, what do I do? Well, I think in some cases what they did is some of them said, this is not worth it. And they recanted their faith and went back to the synagogue. But having done that, they began to look around and view these people again and say, you know, I just don't have the very core of my faith in common with these people anymore. I really am a believer in Jesus. I really am a part of this new thing in Christ. And so, in effect, they recanted their recantation. <laughs> so they wanted to come back into the church. Wanted to come back and be a part of this fellowship of believers in Jesus. 